Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the season of Lent, we are doing a sermon series called The Footsteps of Jesus. The goal of this series is to explore how each of the steps or stages in Jesus's ministry are aspects of our own journey as Christians that we need to mirror in our lives. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from Matthew 4, 12 to 22. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. This is the calling of Matthew the tax collector. And what's important for you to know about this, uh, and I think a little interesting factoid, is that this is where the gospel actually derives its name. Uh, the gospels did not come with names attached to them, and they would often derive them from characters within. And so this is where it actually derives the name Matthew. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. So today we find ourselves in the season of Lent. Lent. Very good. Very good. Okay, so we're in Lent. Lent is traditionally a period of 40 days where Christians walk alongside Jesus as he journeys towards Holy Week. And at the end of Holy Week, we mourn his death on the cross and celebrate his resurrection on Easter. And so as Christians, we are asked to walk in Jesus's footsteps as he makes this journey. And one of the best ways, in my opinion, that we can follow in Jesus's footsteps is by retracing the various stages or steps in his ministry. And so during the season of Lent, we're going to be doing a sermon series called The Footsteps of Jesus. 
And the idea behind this series is that we will examine each individual stage or step of Jesus's ministry. And as we get into the complexities of it, we're going to withdraw the things that really matter to us. And we're going to see that there are some principles within those steps that apply to us and we should be mirroring in our own lives. And so at the end of this, my hope is that you will have grown closer to Jesus walking in his footsteps and that you will also have grown closer to God in your walk. So if you looked in your bulletin, you probably saw that the name of the sermon, it starts as step two, right? And some of you may be thinking, hey, what happened to step one, right? Where did that one go? And of course, Lent always begins on what? Ash Wednesday, right? So uh, Judy was the one who began the sermon series with step one, which was called deprivation. That's where uh, Jesus goes out and he's tempted in the desert for 40 days. And uh, you want to go listen to that? You can hear it online. It's very, very good. It's a good start to the series. But today we are moving to step two, which is when Jesus calls his first disciples. Now, that word disciple in Greek comes from the word mathetes, which literally means pupil or learner, which brings to mind the idea that a disciple is like a student who is going to school and learning from the teacher. Now, this idea of a disciple is a little bit different from a student, though. And what you need to appreciate is that, yes, a disciple is trying to learn the information that the teacher knows. There's no doubt about that. But in the context of what we're talking about today, a disciple is something much, much deeper than that and much, much more profound. And to get at the idea of what a disciple is, I'd like to tell you a brief story about the artist Andrea del Verrocchio. Now, Verrocchio, he lived at the height of the Italian Renaissance. He was born in 1435. He died in 1488. Now, Oraccio had a lot of street cred. He'd studied under Donatello, who at the time was considered one of the greatest artists ever. He also was this guy who was the official sculptor of the Medici family. Now, if you know anything about the Italian Renaissance, the Medici family, they were the top dogs. They were the primary patrons of the arts that were taking place in Florence during the Renaissance. So this guy was at the top of his game. Not only was Verrocchio an amazing artist, but he also happened to be an extraordinarily talented teacher. And so the Medicis, they sponsored Verrocchio to open his own workshop, a school that would train young artists to become some of the best that you would see in the entire Renaissance. Now, to become part of Verrocchio's workshop, you couldn't just be anyone. You had to possess a raw, prodigious talent to become part of his crew of people. Verrocchio had to look at you and he had to believe that you had the potential to become like him because as his disciple, you had to be able to do what he does. Many applied to Verrocchio's workshop. Few were accepted. In 1466, a 14-year-old boy named Leonardo da Vinci applied to Verrocchio's workshop. He was accepted, by the way. He made it in. <laughs> now, as a 14-year-old kid, he's not at the height of his potential yet, right? So 
What happens is he comes in, and the way it works is that you have to go into the workshop. You have to do chores. That's your first job. You're cleaning up. You're basically showing your dedication to the workshop and to your master. The next step is you would learn how to mix all of the pigments that you would use to paint, and you would learn how to set up all of the canvases. So that's the next step in the process. And once you have that all down, once you know how to mix and get the canvases right, then you're allowed to move and start doing studies. First, Leonardo da Vinci would have started doing studies of Veraccio's own works and then eventually of other models. And once you had progressed beyond that point, then you would be allowed, if you were at the right level, to contribute to your own master's works. Now today, when we think of artists, we tend to think of them as being solitary, right? It's a very solitary endeavor. You sit down, you're a single artist, you sit down, you paint a painting, done, right? That's not the way it worked in the Renaissance. In the Renaissance, groups of artists would work together on a single painting, and they would be given overall direction by the master. So the first known work that Leonardo da Vinci was able to participate in, at least that we know of, of Veraccio's own works, was called The Baptism of Christ. So this is the painting. It's a very well-known painting. And we know that Leonardo, he is responsible for, for painting the leftmost angel. Now, this angel, of course, has a distinct difference from all the other characters that are in this particular piece. It's very distinctive to who Leonardo was. It has this light, graceful quality to it. And we also think that he was responsible for painting the background of this work. Now, legend has it that when Veraccio came in and saw that particular angel, that he took his brush, he put it down, and he decided he was never going to paint again because with this one angel, Leonardo da Vinci had surpassed Veraccio's own talents as an artist. The student had become the master. The history is a little bit different, though. <laughs> Historically, what happened was that Baraccio knew that da Vinci was a very, very talented artist, and he wanted to focus his time on sculpting. So when he saw that Leonardo could do so well with it, he said, you know what? Here, take all my teaching responsibilities. You can teach him how to paint. <laughs> and so... That's what he did. He handed it over. That's not nearly as much fun as the legend, is it, right? right? That's why we tell legends and we don't tend to tell history. But this idea of how Veraccio trained Leonardo da Vinci, it gets at the essence of what a disciple is. The master sees the disciple, and the disciple has all this raw, unformed talent, and the master shapes and molds the disciple to become like him. The master doesn't just want the disciple to know what he knows. The master wants the disciple to be able to do what he does. In fact, the master wants to train the disciple so well that eventually the disciple will have greater abilities than the master so that the disciple can become a master in his own right. Do you follow me? All right. This is the concept of a disciple. And it's what defined discipleship in ancient Israel. So in the ancient world, you could be a disciple of a lot of different types of professions. But in the Jewish culture, the disciples who received the most respect were the disciples of rabbis. Now, a rabbi simply means what? 
Teacher, you all know that Hebrew word, right? You got that one down. So teacher, that's all it means. But what it took to become a rabbi was extraordinarily rigorous. And to help you understand what it took, what you had to go through, I need to tell you a little bit about the education system found in ancient Jerusalem. So if you lived in the city of Jerusalem, let's say you were in first century when Jesus was alive. So you're in the city or you're on the outskirts. You had access to the Jewish education system, which generally took place in the synagogues throughout the city. And so what would happen is, between the ages of four and the ages of ten, you would go to these synagogues, and during that time, you were going to learn the first five books of the Bible. So, you're learning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in Hebrew, by heart. That's what you are learning from the age of four until the age of ten. This is what you're memorizing right here. Now, just because they memorized it in Hebrew doesn't mean they knew how to read Hebrew. They learned it orally. And if you know anybody who's an Orthodox Jew today, what you are probably aware of is that this is still a requirement. They still require everybody to learn the first five of the books, first five books of the Bible by heart. Now, by the end of this, what was known as Beit Safar, so that was the first level of education, Beit Safar. By the end of Beit Safar, what would happen is, at the age of 10, the vast majority of these students would be sent back to their homes. So if you were a boy, you would be sent back to learn the family trade. If you were a girl, you were sent back to learn how to keep a home. But the boys who showed the most promise during Beit Safar would be moved to the next level of education what was called Beit Talmud. Now, during Beit Talmud, what you have to realize is that they would learn, not by heart, but they would become familiar with and know the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, Joshua through Malachi, and then they would memorize as best they could all of the oral traditions of the scribes and the elders. This generally took about five years for them to accomplish this, sometimes a little bit longer. Now, by the end of Beit Talmud, the vast majority of those boys had been sent back to their parents, where they learned a family trade. But the best of the best of those who were part of Beit Talmud could move on to the final level of education, what was known as Beit Midrash. And in Beit Midrash, you would go and you would apply to a specific rabbi to become one of those rabbi's disciples. So the rabbi, when you came to a rabbi and applied to a rabbi, the rabbi would be grilling you. The rabbi would sit there and he was trying to determine, does this 15 or 16-year-old kid have what it takes to be like me? Can he truly do what I do? Can he be my disciple? So he wants to know, does the kid know the scriptures inside and out? Does the kid know the oral tradition inside and out? But you can't just be a robot and spit it all back. There's a little bit more to it than that. You have to be able to work with the knowledge. You have to be able to be a spiritual leader. And so he's looking for, does this kid have that X factor? Many, many applied, but few were accepted. If you were accepted into the rabbi's inner circle, you became known as one of the rabbi's yoke. 
That's what you were referred to. And a yoke usually consisted, although it could be higher or lower, usually consisted of about 12 people, 12 disciples who he had taken on. The number 12 is significant. Why? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Okay. Now, if you have been alive during first century Palestine, like if you've been alive at that time, and you went into the city of Jerusalem, what you would have seen are rabbis walking around everywhere. And as they were walking, they would have their disciples following behind them in tow. So that's what they would have been doing. They've been walking around. And what you have to realize is that they would have been speaking the whole time. So they're walking and they're talking. They're talking about the law. They're talking about the oral tradition. And what would happen is that their disciples would be following close behind. They're trying to keep up. They're trying to hear everything that he's saying because they're trying to absorb it all. And if you've seen the Middle East, you know what? That it's very dusty, right? And so the rabbi's walking along and he's kicking up all this dust and the, and the disciples, they're just trying to follow close behind him and they're getting caked. Their legs are just getting caked with dust. And so this saying developed among the wise men and the sages. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. After about 15 years of time, of working under a specific rabbi, you could apply to the Jewish council to be recognized as a rabbi on your own. And if they recognized you, then you could take on disciples and begin teaching yourself. This would happen around the age of 30. And 30 is when Jesus himself, we think, began teaching and taking on his own disciples. Now there's something you need to know about Jesus which is very important. Jesus... He was not an educated man. He did not come up going through the Jewish education system in Jerusalem. He did not train under the best rabbis. But what the Gospels tell us about Jesus is that he had this innate wisdom and knowledge that garnered him a great deal of respect. And in fact, what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus was actually able to go toe-to-toe with very learned men when he was talking about the Scriptures. And so even though he had not been recognized by the council as a rabbi, he was shown the respect of a rabbi. And as we read this morning, he starts taking on disciples. Now, the disciples he takes on, they're very different from the disciples that you would normally expect him to get. Because who are his disciples? What do they do for a living? They're fishermen, right? So what does that tell you? That means they're not the best of the best, are they? I mean, if they made it through school at all, then they probably didn't even make it past the first level of education. So these 15 or 16-year-old kids are probably looking at Jesus thinking, what does this guy want to do with me? But also you have to realize something. They're not applying to him. They're not going to him saying, hey, I want to be your disciple. No, no, it's the other way around. Jesus is coming to them saying, I want you to follow me. So you have to imagine they're thinking, what does Jesus see in me that he thinks I can be like them? Because every other rabbi, what do they want? They want the brightest, the smartest, the very best they can get their hands on. Not Jesus. Jesus wants the average Joe, the common guy, the person who didn't even make it through grade school. That's who Jesus wants. So, that should raise a question in our minds, shouldn't it? Why does Jesus want the JV team, as opposed to the varsity, to be his disciples? And to answer this question, I think we need to go back to our example with Veraccio 
in Leonardo da Vinci. So Verrocchio, he sees Leonardo da Vinci. And within Leonardo, he sees he has all this raw potential as an artist. But this amazing God-given gift is unformed, isn't it? He has all this potential inside of him, but he needs the right teacher to bring out all the potential inside of him. And Verrocchio looks at Leonardo da Vinci and he says, yes, I'm the person who can help bring that out. I can bring all of that potential to fruition. Verrocchio believed that Leonardo could become like him. In the same way, Jesus looks at these fishermen and he sees the raw potential for them to become like him. Now, on the outside of it, that would not seem to be the case, would it? These are just ordinary, average guys. They got nothing special. They got nothing unique. They've got nothing that really sets them apart from the pack. In fact, most of Jesus' disciples, when you start hearing about them, they are referred to as reprobates and sinners. That's our second scripture reading today. So he calls, as one of his disciples, Matthew the tax collector, right? Tax collectors were considered to be corrupt. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. Now, the reason why he was corrupt is because he was considered to be an enemy. He was working for the Roman government. He was considered to be a thief. He was stealing from his own people to fund the oppression of the Jews. And when he calls Matthew, we see in the scripture that people question him. They're like, hey, what are you doing? Look at this. This is what I say. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus sees great potential in those who are normally rejected by society. He looks past our flaws deep down inside of our hearts to see the potential within us. He sees what nobody else can see, this amazing God-given gift. Jesus, he looks at us, and he is like Verrocchio. Verrocchio was a teacher, was he not? Jesus is our teacher. He's taking all of that potential that resides inside of us, all that raw, unformed talent, and he brings it out into the world. And you know what else? Like Verrocchio, Jesus believes that we can become like him. The fact that you're ordinary, the fact that you're average, the fact that you don't have anything that necessarily makes you stick out from all the other humans on earth, that's exactly what Jesus wants. You don't have to be the best of the best to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be super talented. You don't have to be super athletic. You don't have to be super successful. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to look great. No. What makes you ordinary to everyone else is what makes you special to Jesus. Because what Jesus cares about when he's calling his disciples is the potential for love inside of your heart. That's what he wants. The potential for love inside of your heart. Now, I think that that's really important. Because from the perspective of the world, the world doesn't care how much you can love. You can't put love down on your resume. Love isn't going to get you a job, right? But love, or the potential to love, is the most important quality that Jesus looks for when he's trying to find his disciples. And what I would submit to you this morning is the reason why Jesus chose fishermen. 
and tax collectors and sinners to be his disciples is because he saw great potential for love inside of their hearts. And look at what they did. He handed his entire movement over to a bunch of uneducated peasants. And today, Christianity is one of the largest religions in the world. Now, I find that to be absolutely remarkable. And what that tells us is that Jesus believes that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. And so for the second step in Jesus' journey towards the cross, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, do I have what it takes to become a disciple of Jesus? Can I walk in the footsteps of my rabbi? Can I become like him? Can I do what he did? And if you're anything like Peter or Andrew, James, John, Matthew, you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, no, I can't do what he did. I can't be like him. I can't love like he loved. But you have to remember, it's not about what you can do right now. It's about the potential for love that God sees inside of your heart and the potential that God can bring out into the world. Jesus is calling you to be his disciple because he believes in you. He believes that you can follow his teachings. He believes that you can love like he loves. He believes you can do what he does. You just have to believe in him as much as he believes in you. And so, as you leave here today, I want you to take a moment and I want you to look inside of your own heart and I want you to ask yourself a question. How much love do I have to give? Maybe it's a little bit of love. Maybe it's a lot. But regardless of how much love you have in your heart, once you become a disciple of Jesus, you are giving him free reign over your life. You are giving him the ability to take all that potential inside of you and to bring it out, to mold it, to shape it, to guide you so that you can change the world for the better. And my prayer for you today is that you would walk in the footsteps of Jesus, that you would try to live like he lived, that you would walk so closely behind him to hear and absorb everything that he's saying, that you might be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.